The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. I don't know if you're like me, but I think about Lent every year, the 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter minus the Sundays in between. It's kind of a time for an annual spiritual checkup with the great physician, and I use it as an opportunity for, to pray that God would kind of show me in areas that God wants to correct or areas where I can grow. And it's my hope that by reading through the Gospel of John together as a church from beginning to end, and then our sermon series based on the Gospel of John, that that might be true for you as well. May we pray. God, would you speak today uh, for your servants who are listening? Amen. So how many of you watched the Super Bowl last week? Last Sunday. Did you catch a commercial with a hashtag at the end of it with hashtag he gets us? It was a series of images of people washing other people's feet. Did anybody see that? This is one of the images um, from that commercial. We got a little bit of a possession going on with the uh, screens today. It caused quite a stir. In the Twitterverse and the social mediaverse afterwards, people had all kinds of questions because it was a conversation starter. Some people said, who's behind that commercial? What's their real agenda? Or, Jesus may love people, I agree, but he wouldn't condone everything they do, and that almost suggested to me like Jesus was condoning. Or, how much money did they spend on that commercial? Shouldn't those Christians be spending money on feeding hungry people or something like that? I had a question. Why is Justin Bieber washing the feet of Mr. Rogers in like the left-hand part of that image? But that's not one that made controversy. I'm not particularly interested in picking apart or wading into those questions, but I do recognize why it was a conversation starter in the first place. It's because 2,000 years later, we are still pondering the purpose and implications of what Jesus does in John chapter 13. Our series, The Last Supper Club, is recognizing that the Gospel of John has a very different way of presenting the Last Supper than does Mark, Matthew, or Luke. You see, in Mark, Matthew, or Luke, you basically get about a paragraph about Jesus with His disciples at what they describe as the Passover meal, but Jesus gives a new meaning by taking the bread and breaking it and saying, this is my body, and giving the cup and saying, this represents my blood, and I want you to remember from now on that's what this is about and about forgiveness. John doesn't give a paragraph. He devotes five chapters, over 20% of his gospel, to this singular event, this one dinner table conversation between the Son of God and His 12 disciples. And we get the privilege of being able to overhear this intimate conversation, Jesus' final words of teaching, blessing, and instruction to His disciples. This image, of course, that we have our text on there was painted first by Leonardo da Vinci in the early 15, or late 1500s, excuse me, late 15th century. Um, I actually have a bookmark of this that was given to me by one of our members uh, who visited the actual painting in Italy in spring 2023. The story begins in chapter 13 with a bit of a prologue from the narrator before they get into the nitty-gritty of what Jesus will do with His disciples. In verse 1 it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them. To the end. 
When it says that Jesus knew the hour had come, John is setting up the stage for basically to say everything that's been leading up to this moment is about to happen or is about to bring about the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus' purpose on earth. That phrase, Jesus knew the hour had come, is an interesting phrase. John uses it seven times in his gospel. It first appears in John chapter 2 when Jesus is at the wedding with his mother at Cana of Galilee. And his mother comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. This is really embarrassing, as though Jesus might do something about it. And he says, why are you telling me this? My hour has not yet come. But here in chapter 13, he knows his hour has come. So something he's been waiting for is about to happen. Well, having loved his own, it says, he loved them to the end, meaning completely or wholly. And that's important because in verse 2, it tells us about one of the characters who's present at this meal and why Jesus' love may be particularly consequential given what's going on within them. In verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already tempted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. John includes this verse in the prologue because I think he wants you and me as the reader to know. Before Jesus begins what he's going to do or says what he's going to say, John wants us to understand that these events take place with Jesus' full knowledge about what was at work in the heart of one of His twelve disciples. Jesus knows what Judas is thinking and what his motivations are. If you were to zoom in in that Da Vinci depiction of the Last Supper onto Judas, you would see Judas in the foreground of the three persons here who were, as you're facing the image, to the left-hand side of Jesus. The beloved disciple, perhaps the author of the Gospel of John, is the younger one on the right. St. Peter is in the background, a little bit older, and he, of course, always has something intense to say. You can see it on his face. And then you've got Judas, who's holding in his right hand, kind of clutched tightly, a money bag, a purse. He was the treasurer for the disciples. He managed their income and expenses and covered all of the meals and lodging that they would have needed for three years of ministry. And as we will find out in other Gospels, he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He's looking back almost in suspicion. Notice how darkly he is cast in the shadow of the moment as compared to the other disciples. Light and darkness are important themes in the Gospel of John. Judas is a, is a curious character to me. I think all of us are interested. Why in the world did he do what he did? But here's a mistake we can make when it comes to Judas. I, we don't have time today to devote everything, uh, the sermon, to what we know about him. But here's something I do want to point out. Please don't think that Judas was a man who didn't have a choice to make. That somehow the dark forces of evil in the universe, the Satan, the devil overwhelmed his ability to make his own decisions of his own free will. He was not just a pawn used by the evil one to bring about the death of God's Son. Yes, God was able to weave in this temptation to betray Jesus by Judas into God's overall plan to save the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, of course. But he was still a man given a choice. And that tells me that I can learn something from him. You see, Judas, nobody had a better preacher to listen to than Judas. No one had more thorough instruction 
for seminary training than three years with Jesus, than Judas. None of us could have had a more intimate small group experience than Judas had with the other 11 disciples and Jesus. None of us could get closer to the power of God as revealed in Jesus by raising Lazarus from the dead and healing sick people and multiplying loaves and fishes. None of us would have witnessed more intimately the impact of Jesus' ministry upon people's lives and heard their shouts for joy and their tears of gratitude. Yet he still fell away. The enemy placed a seed of temptation in his heart, and whatever his motivation was, Judas allowed that seed to grow, and it became an act of full-fledged betrayal of Jesus. And John wants you and me to know Jesus already knows all that before he does what he's about to do. So in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, which is a way of John saying not only was Jesus aware of what was in the heart of Judas, Jesus remembered what was in the heart of his Father and he found himself being drawn to fulfill the will of his father, even knowing what was in the heart of Judas. So in verse 4, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In verse 4, it almost reads like a screenwriter's movie script in slow motion, one task at a time, intentionally undertaken by Jesus. Why would he wash their feet? This must be important for John because Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it at all. It only shows up in John's gospel. Well, for at a practical level, it was because in that day, feet needed to be washed People only wore sandals like this one, which is actually in a museum in England from the first century. It's a Roman sandal. It had leather on the bottom and straps across the top, sometimes between the toes and tied around the ankles. And it's a dry, arid, dusty part of the world. And so feet and calves all the way up to the knees would get dusty and dirty every single day. And so one late uh, Dutch artist uh, from the late sixth, early 16th century. I keep getting those backwards today. The early 17th century, late 1600s. Early 1600s, late, just forget it. There was an artist a long time ago who painted this, and they were a really gifted person. And <laughs> If we had the time to go around this image today, we would see that there, the author of this painting, the artist, is trying to tell us something about the disciples' response. There's one person in the front left who looks as though they've already been washed and cleaned. Their shoes are removed. There's Jesus in the red kneeling before who is certainly Simon Peter, as we'll see in just a moment. In the background, you have the disciples. Some of them are, have their hands raised in surprise. Others are whispering to another disciple, what in the world is Jesus doing? And that's because we know this is a humbling task if you've ever had to wash someone's feet. But... In the first century, rabbis taught their disciples that this was such a menial task, such a lowly task, that if a Jewish household leader 
had servants in their household, they could only delegate this, this task to Gentile servants rather than Jewish servants. And if they only had Jewish servants within their household, that Jewish servant was given the right to refuse the task should they so choose. What is happening here? Jesus? By washing the defeat of the disciples and Judas, which was a job for only, as they viewed it at the time, a second-class person, a Gentile, Jesus was voluntarily making Himself an outsider to their culture, to their worldview, in order that those whose feet He's washing could become insiders. And if I'm sitting around that table with the disciples, I'm thinking, boy... Jesus is serving Judas, washing the feet of Judas, cleansing between the dirty toes of Judas? Boy, I guess Jesus really does love everybody. I guess Jesus will even love people who betray Him and oppose Him and are willing to do Him harm. But I sure am thankful I'm not as bad as Judas I would never do that to Jesus. Sell Him out? I mean, I'm not perfect, I know, but I would never go that far to become an adversary of Jesus, to harm Jesus, and that would make me feel just a little bit better. And there's a character in the story, another prominent character in the story, who I think is thinking that way. Because it says in verse 6, when he came to Simon Peter, he said to, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, not every one of you was clean. If you go back to that image from the painter, the timeline of which I messed up radically, I'm convinced that it's Peter whose feet Jesus are washing. Because if you can see, the older man is saying, me? Me? You want to wash my feet? Maybe Peter is just embarrassed to have Jesus wash his feet. I understand that. We're self-conscious about our feet, some of us. We're embarrassed about our feet. My wife has the cutest little petite feet, and she gets pedicures sometimes, and she gets her toenails painted, and they're just really, really cute. And when she wears flip-flops in the summer, it's, it's to her benefit. It's just like a feature. On the other hand, I look like I could swoop down from the sky and use my talons to capture my dinner from a lake. And I would be much more hesitant if somebody said, hey, why don't you take your shoes and socks off, by the way, in front of other people and let me wash your feet. I would protest because it would require me to humble myself and allow someone else to touch a part of my body that I'm self-conscious about that I'd rather keep quiet or keep unseen. And Jesus washes the feet of a spiritual outsider, Judas, 
demonstrating the inclusive nature of His love is not limited by a person's moral standing. We can see that. But when it comes to Peter, Jesus insists on washing the feet of a spiritual insider, at least as He thought of Himself. Teaching that unless we are willing, all willing, to become vulnerable to His washing, we will never truly be made clean. In other words... Unless Peter's willing to say, Lord, I'm willing to present to you the part of who I am that is the most embarrassing, that will require the least amount of pride, that makes me the most vulnerable, Jesus says, unless you allow me to wash that part of you, then you can have no part of me. You won't experience my redemption, my grace, my cleansing power at all. So he washes his feet. And after doing this, Jesus makes a statement about to his, to his disciples essentially saying, now what you've just experienced from me, I am going to commission you to do for others. In verses 13, or chapter 13, 12 through 15, and then again in verse 34. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, the implication there with Judas at the table is Jesus saying to His disciples, as I have served this one, I want you to be so willing to extend that same grace to other people that you'd be willing to wash the feet of someone who is your enemy the way that Judas has made himself my enemy. And in verse 34, Jesus will sum it up saying, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, you will know, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, there's nothing new about Jesus teaching for them to love their neighbor. They've been hearing that for three years. They've been observing that for three years. They've been participating with Jesus in that for three years. If Before they had never met, ever met Jesus, if they'd read the Old Testament book of Leviticus, they knew they were required to love their neighbor and to treat their neighbor the way that they wanted to be treated. Why does Jesus say this is a new command? I think it's because Jesus understands that we sometimes have a different definition of love than He does. You see, and I owe this observation to the late Tim Keller. Most of the time when we conceptualize love, it's a very romanticized love. It's a love that begins with desire for another person. We think of love as attraction. We're attracted to someone for their physical beauty, their intelligence, their success, their skills. Love... Um, is something that we're drawn to, the qualities of another person. And if that's true, then there's a way of thinking about that that really places our ego at the center. In other words, it's a self-serving love. I desire you because you make me feel good. You meet my needs. You fill my heart. Or you make me feel significant. Or I like being associated with you when other people look at me. And Jesus is saying, I give you a new way of loving 
Because what was Jesus getting in return from washing their dusty, dirty feet? Not a single thing. He was demonstrating to His disciples, I love you because you are valuable to Me. And I can see a future for you relative to your feet as an example that is better. And I would like to help you experience and achieve and move toward that preferred future. And so I'm going to wash your feet. My question for us is the same question that he asked his disciples. Do you understand what he has done for you? That Jesus Christ has demonstrated a new kind of love that doesn't ask for reciprocity, that isn't self-serving, that has no way of looking for love to return something to Him. Instead, He requires His disciples to present the most vulnerable parts of their bodies that we see in public to the loving service of God so that He can cleanse them And the beautiful power of this story is, as we'll learn in just a next chapter or two, is that He will replace that dirt in our lives, the parts of our souls, our minds, our hearts that need to be cleansed. He replaces that with the presence of the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, so that we can become empowered by the love of God to go and share that selfless love for others. And friends, the most powerful witness to the truth of the Christian faith is when God's church, which is the body of Christ continuing His ministry in the world, demonstrates a selfless love for other people. That is powerful. When I was growing up, this was the church I attended. First Church of the Nazarene in Waycross, Georgia. Small church in a small town. Church of about 55 or 60 people most times. And there was a couple in that church. I've looked for a picture of them and I couldn't find it. Um, Gene and Phyllis Neal. And they were members of the church who loved the church, served the church, supported the church, all those things. They were gracious people. Mr. Neal, I remember when our church, uh, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, we wanted to remodel the hallways, take off some of that dreaded 1970s paneling and put up some sheetrock. And so the mostly men of the church came forward for a series of work nights to pull off that paneling. And Mr. Neal was kind and patient with a bumbling 10 or 11-year-old trying to do makeshift carpentry, taught me how to hang a sheet of sheetrock and how to put mud over the seam and then put tape and cover it with mud and come back to sand it and then to paint it. He was just a very gentle and kind person. I went away to college at 19 years old. And when I came home late in college to visit my family, I went to church that Sunday morning, and it was such a small church and such a small town. People were in church about 51 Sundays a year. And it was easy to see who wasn't there because there's nothing else to do in our little town. So I asked my parents, I said, you know, I didn't see Mr. and Miss Neal. And my dad said, well, unfortunately, she's sick. She's been diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. That terrible disease that takes away your power to control your muscles beginning at your extremities and moving its way in until ultimately it paralyzes your lungs and it's a fatal disease. I learned a couple of years after that when I was going back to my hometown that Mrs. Neal had passed away and I went to church that Sunday and I saw Mr. Neal 
And so I was a young adult and wasn't real familiar with how to express sympathy and condolence, but I wanted to say something to him. So I approached him and greeted him and said, I'm so sorry to hear about Miss Phyllis. She was such a, a precious lady. I have very good memories of her. I'm sorry that she passed away. And he said, thank you. Thank you. We were married over 50 years. And I said, I'm so sorry that, you know, that her illness, that should have been must must have been very difficult, and I understand from my father that you were her primary caregiver, and she lived at home even until the very end when you had some assistance. And he said, oh, yeah. And he said, I tell you, um, he said, I've gotten a lot stronger because I had to pick her up to take her to bathe. I had to feed her meals, help her get into bed, and help her to the bathroom. And I didn't know what to say. I just said, I'm sorry, that must have been very difficult. And what shocked me was that his face lit up and he smiled. This, his whole countenance was just peaceful. And he said, oh no, I think those were the best years of our marriage. I was struck by that and I didn't understand it. But now a little older, a little wiser, a little more life experience, I think I get it. There was in the heart and life of that man a completely selfless love for his wife. When all of the joy that in the relationship that they had experienced over five decades, she was able to return very little of that in her condition. And he found it as some of the best years of the marriage. Friends, I want to encourage you in this Lenten season twofold. One, to think about the places in your lives that, that you would rather hide from God. Not me, Lord. You'll never wash my feet. And hear the words of Jesus unless you're uh, willing to allow Him to have access to that part of your thinking, your feeling, your soul. We can have no part of Him. And secondly, perhaps where God might want to grow the love of God in your heart so that you can, as Jesus told his disciples, serve others the way that you yourself have been served. May we pray. We thank you today, God, for the love of your Son revealed to the world and how it seeks us out, forgives us, but then makes us like him. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is honest enough with ourselves to allow Jesus to cleanse and wash the parts of our life that we'd rather nobody else see or know about. Trusting that you would replace all that dirt, all that needs to be cleaned with the presence of your spirit and a love for others that we may model a Christ-centered, selfless love to the world. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 